The following program is for informational and educational purposes only. This program does not replace medical, mental health, or psychological diagnosis and treatment prescribed by your personal physician, psychologist, therapist, or other health care provider. Please consult your provider for diagnosis and care before beginning or changing any program or idea discussed. Welcome to Psych Up Live with your host, Dr. Suzanne Phillips. This is the show that brings you a psychological perspective on common and current life issues. Here is Dr. Suzanne Phillips. Hi, I'm Suzanne Phillips. Thanks for joining me again on Psych Up Live. I want you to consider these situations. A man tells me that his father walked out when he was an infant. I'm haunted, he says. At the 17th anniversary of 9-11, listening groups were formed, and a woman shares with the group, I feel quite guilty. I've never had a memorial or any type of burial service for my brother. There were no remains. How can I get closure? Recently, I expressed my condolences to a colleague who lost his mother, and he replies, Sue, I lost my mother a long time ago. She died of Alzheimer's disease. Today, we are going to talk about understanding and treating ambiguous loss. Our guest expert is Dr. Pauline Boss. She's the principal theorist in the study of ambiguous loss, and it is Dr. Boss who coined the term ambiguous loss in the 70s. She is Professor Emeritus at the University of Minnesota, a fellow in the American Psychological Association and the American Association for Marriage and Family Therapy. She's a former president of the National Council on Family Relations and a family therapist in private practice. She has written a great deal, and three of her books, one in 2000, and 2000 was Ambiguous Loss, Learning to Live with Unresolved Grief, In 2006, she wrote Loss, Trauma, and Resilience, Therapeutic Work with Ambiguous Loss for Professionals to Inform Their Treatment. And her most recent book, which I think is so important, it's written for families, it's entitled Loving Someone Who Has Dementia, How to Find Hope While Coping with Stress and Grief. Dr. Pauline Boss, it is my privilege to welcome you today to Psych Up Live. It's my my privilege to thank you. So, Dr. Boss, let's start with the question, what is ambiguous loss? Well, ambiguous loss is a loss that has no clarity. It's a situation of unclear loss that remains unverified and therefore without resolution. Um, a person is physically missing, but you don't know if they're dead or alive or where they are. Or a person can be psychologically missing. They're here in front of you, but their mind or their emotions or their memory is going or gone. Uh, so ambiguous loss is an incongruence between absence and presence. It's confusing. It, it's mysterious. It's like somebody is here but not here, or a loved one is gone but you don't know for sure. Hmm. It's a kind of loss that was never named before, and I thought uh, I came upon it in graduate school uh, when I was sitting uh, doing therapy with Carl Whitaker and other residents at that time. 
um, seeing fathers at that time in, in a family where the child is the identified patient. And the fathers always said, I don't want to be here. The children are mother's business. Now, I know that's changed today. But in the 1970s, I wrote a paper that said... Um, <clears throat> Fathers were psychologically absent but physically present. So mm. um, that, that was the start. Mm-hmm. And then a theory development professor told me, it's more than about fathers, Pauline. He said, raise it to a higher level. And that's when I came up with the term ambiguous loss. And so it really, can be captures, ambiguous. It really captures Pardon? the uh, situations you're talking about. Um, Dr. Boss, just so we are clear on it, Ambiguous loss, you don't have a definite affirming verification of the loss and or it's a psychological um, loss due to cognitive or emotional impairment. What's an example that people might confuse with with ambiguous loss that is in fact not ambiguous loss? Uh, Well, something that is not ambiguous loss. People, people experiencing loss, it's not clear what it is. One example might be PTSD, uh, where loss is certainly in that condition, but it's not apparent. Nobody has died. Um, and so the person is still there, but they are having symptoms. So that's not an ambiguous loss, primarily because um, PTSD is an individual uh, uh, issue, whereas ambiguous loss is a relational issue. Now, there, one could argue about that. It's some nuances in there as well. But there's nothing post about ambiguous loss uh, as, it, as there is with post-traumatic stress disorder. Okay. Um, ambiguous loss can go on for a lifetime. It can go on across the generations, as we see with slavery, the ambiguous losses of slavery, the ambiguous losses of our Native American Indians uh, being uprooted and and killed and moved away. Um, mm-hmm. It can be the Holocaust. It can be 9-11. Uh, and so it can be all of these other things. But uh, And P- PTSD is related, but not exactly the same. Okay. Now, one of the things you say is... This is a very stressful type of loss. Maybe you can speak a little bit to that. Yes. Ambiguous loss is not, the theory of ambiguous loss is not a medical model. Uh, It's a stress model. What it is saying that the ambiguity surrounding the loss is a very stressful condition, and it's that stress from the ambiguity that causes the symptoms. It is not that the person has a weak psyche or has some deficiency or that the family is abnormal. The situation is abnormal, not the people experiencing it, and that's one of the core assumptions of this work. Well, I I resonated so much with that because having worked with so many 9-11 families, they did not want to be labeled as having a psychological problem, just what you're saying. And it was much more so that their lives had within a day, a few hours, been totally changed. And there was for so many no remains and no way to move on is what many of them felt. Um, and we saw, and I saw how, how difficult it was on the 
the family level, how every aspect of the family, some children wanted to go to school and neighbors told the mothers, oh, that's not right. She shouldn't want to go to school. Some kids didn't want to go back to college. Some kids didn't want to come home from college. Some people wanted to do the holidays. Other people thought that would be rather rude or unacceptable. So you say at one point in your writing that it really throws a, a chaos into every level of the family. Do you want to speak a little to that? Well, absolutely. Um, I was called into New York after 9-11 also because um, the president of a labor union had a wife who used to be my student, so he knew that my emphasis was on families of the missing. I, I re- in relation to what you said, I remember at one of those meetings in the labor union hall with the families, and, and yes, we tried to normalize their reaction. Their reactions were normal to an abnormal situation. Yes. And so one of the questions came up, is should we let our children celebrate Halloween if their dad- daddies or mamas are down in the pile? And... One of the things I have learned over the years working with many different groups of people experiencing this kind of loss, I wouldn't answer a question like that because it has a cultural base. And fortunately, we had grandparents and aunts and uncles in those family meetings as well. And so I asked the elders to answer that question for the younger parents. Should these children be allowed to celebrate Halloween so soon after 9-11? So they they got in groups and talked about it, and the answer came up from the elders' advice that, yes, they should let their children um, celebrate Halloween just because it was the custom, it was something orderly that they have ordinarily done that they would do again in this time of disorder. It sounds like something you worked with as well. Yes, and just you in mentioning the groups, one of the things that you write about, and I, I, as a member of the American Group Psychotherapy Association and doing a lot of groups and having met with so many groups after 9-11, one of the things you say is that when you use as part of the healing or part of the attempt to move on, um, community and groups, church groups, family groups, you really take the pathology piece out of it. And as you say... Yes, and you get more strength. Uh, I mean, one therapist can't can't handle all of this after disaster. Indeed, we can one-to-one when when things are calmer uh, in our offices. But when you have a community disaster of this scale and you have people from many different cultures that don't even believe in therapy, by the way, um, you must have community meetings. And or in this case, it was in a labor union hall. In another case, it might be in a church basement. Often is in a school as in Tokyo, as in uh, Fukushima, after their earthquake and uh, tsunami. Um, so the community is strong and can add to the therapist's strength. The therapist can help, professional therapists can help organize it, but we are working together collaboratively to, to work in a situation, by the way, that has no solution. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That's not what we were trained for in graduate school. 
I, I think you're so right. So often I would feel, Dr. Boss, that I was holding the container, but they were really providing the best support they could for each other, especially because at times people really did have, as you say, based on their culture, their nationality, different solutions, and they did really open up um, options for each other. That is, when someone felt they, they could, when someone felt, how could she have a birthday when it was because of the child's birthday that the dad had switched his his uh, shift at the fire department, and that's mm. why he died. That kind of thinking, and the group Lots was so important in saying, but you have a child who's going to celebrate a birthday. And that's, that's right. really that's part right. of the life he's having now. So they were able, as you're saying, the elders, to tell each other things that no therapist really has the the really the bandwidth to do. And really, we're not in those shoes. So I love in your readings how much you talk about the importance of family and community. Now, yes, and and by the way, the of family. Family can be something beside the biological or marital family. It can be, it should be people of like mindedness, that is, they're experiencing the same type of loss. We see this, by the way, with caregivers who are working with loved ones who have dementia. They really need community support. They really need a psychological family. This is tough work. And one of the things with ambiguous loss that comes is isolation, and isolation will make you ill. Um, we, we know, for example, that with caregivers, um, they die at a rate 63% higher than their same age group. So caregiving is dangerous to your health, and the one thing that helps is human connection. Mm-hmm. Well, and as you say, your new, your latest book for families on Loving Someone Who Has Dementia, How to Find Hope While Coping with Stress and Grief is a true gift. Mm-hmm. And I and I imagine groups that are relating together, um, as you say, really, really play an important part in helping each other survive and develop more yes. and more resilience. Now, yes, I thing- wrote that pretty much so there could be reading groups, so there could be book clubs giving together. We don't need to pathologize caregivers, they, but they do need human connection. And so uh, it might not be a therapy group. It might just be a book club, and they would read the book together. Uh, a lot of them around the country have, and in Europe have been doing that, by the way. Nice. The main thing is getting together. Yes, So now let's just talk about, so when you talk about psychological family, it's funny, I was thinking of it in a different way. I've used it in maybe a different way because I've said to people who are leaving the family or feel bereft of the family because they have been um, deployed somewhere else, I've said, how do you carry the family with you? Now, maybe that's more of an enduring presence. You're using the term psychological family in a different kind of way. Well, I wouldn't, I wouldn't disagree with what you just said. Um, for example, military deployments or people who have to move far away, like even going to college, um, they can stay together psychologically with, um, you know, media um, and t- telecommunications that are available now uh, that weren't available years ago when immigrants came to this country and you never saw your parents again. Right. Mm-hmm. So that's a, that's a good thing, by the way, that's happening now with technology. 
Um, the way I use more psychological family more broadly, however, is that each of us um, may not be living right next door to the most supportive family we could have. People right. are mobile right now, and and in fact, some families aren't supportive. Let's let's face that. So, everyone needs a. A, a, a group, a family in their mind and in their heart of the people you would invite to your most important holiday dinner, your your wedding, and and uh, who you don't want to invite, who is supportive mm-hmm. to you, and who makes you feel tired after you've been with them, who drains you. Dr. So Wolf, what I'm you want is the people that wait, nourish wait, wait. you. Dr. Boss, I want us to come right back to that. They're cueing me that we're we're going to have to take a brief break. So let's do that, and we'll come right back to the psychological family. You've been listening to Psych Up Live. We're speaking with Dr. Pauline Boss. She's the psychologist who penned the term and did the research ambiguous on ambiguous loss in the 70s. Her new book, Loving Someone Who Has Dementia: How to Find Hope While Coping with Stress and Grief, stay with us. We'll be right back to talk about the psychological family. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. Every day, we're surrounded by technical buzzwords and jargon that can go way over our heads. Now, there's a show that brings it all back down to earth. Tune in for today, Tomorrow's Technologies, with host Jose Negron. We'll not only explain the new technologies that are shaping our world, we'll give you the benefits and backstory of these technologies. Listen for T3 with Jose Negron, live every Tuesday at noon Eastern Time and 9 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Are you ready to buy or sell a business? Where do you begin? You want to make sure that both the buying and selling parties are mentally, physically, and financially ready to operate a small business, as well as have the expertise or management confidence in the type of business you're planning to buy. Listen to The Michael Saunders Show with Michael Saunders and Warren Whitus. We'll help you with questions about marketing, finance, hiring, and more. Listen Mondays at 3 p.m. Eastern, noon Pacific, on Voice America Variety. We all know that today our country is in many ways run by vested interests, which have accumulated large amounts of power for themselves and at our expense. But this can be changed by recognizing the problems and then by adopting libertarian solutions to address them. Tune into All Rise, the Libertarian Way with Judge Jim Gray. Judge Gray and his guests will discuss the problem areas of today and then present solutions that result in a better world for ourselves and and our children. Tune in Fridays at 7 a.m. Pacific, 10 a.m. Eastern on Voice America Variety. Stimulating talk gets those synapses in the brain inspired really fast. All the time. The number one internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com. You are listening to Psych Up Live. Join in our conversation today by calling Dr. Suzanne Phillips or her guest at 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. You may also send an email to radiohostphillips at gmail.com. Now, back to Psych Up Live. 
Welcome back to Psych Up Live. We're speaking with Dr. Pauline Boss about ambiguous loss. And Dr. Boss, we were just finishing with the idea, I'm going to quote you, the psychological family, the one you carry in your heart and your head, the one you can bring with you wherever you actually are. Now, one of the um, techniques, therapeutic interventions that you talk about, but I don't know if it also has expansive options for families themselves, is the family narrative. Let's talk a little bit about that. Well, the... Families always have stories to tell, and um, you can just tell that around the Thanksgiving table, around the holidays, uh, those stories are told, and often retold and retold, uh, and they're told across generations, and they become sort of the theme of a particular family. Some families are more resilient than others. Some families, by the way, may their, their narrative may be, let's see who can drink the most, or their narrative may be, uh, let's talk about the children, or uh, their narrative may be, for example, in my family, we've just got a, a load of people who are in the helping professions. Now, where did that come from? <laughs> and we find stories back um, in the old country where my immigrant father came from that his mother was um, the village midwife and the village uh, counselor. My father was the village counselor in Wisconsin here at and my daughter is a family physician, I'm a family therapist, and we have loads of nurses in the family. So our story centers around helping. There are times I wish we had a lawyer in the family, but we don't. (laughs) Um, So the stories tell us um, the theme of the family, and then when disaster comes, or tragedy, or just losses, which are inevitable uh, across the generations, they influence these family stories, these family narratives influence how we cope and whether or not we can cope and move forward despite tragedy. Uh, So we're not just looking for um, stories of uh, addiction or a series of heart attacks or inherited illnesses. We're looking for stories of resilience. And what we want to do in therapy and, and in groups and maybe just with our friends at, uh, in neighborhood groups is to reshape the story so that it is, it is a healthy outcome it, so that it makes people resilient, not victims. You reshape the story uh, to, uh, for example, if somebody was victimized, they're already doing this, so you see it on the news. They don't want to be called victims. They want to be called survivors. That's a reshaping of the story that I think is very functional. What you're trying to do is empower people with the family narrative. Now, that being said, I want to ask you this. Sometimes... There's different perspectives from different family members. And I'm, I'm wondering about the necessary room there has to be to be those kind of different perspectives. So someone might say, oh, I feel terrible that Aunt Joan is not coming to Thanksgiving. And someone else might say, I'm actually happy Aunt Joan is not coming. <laughs> she, 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 she monopolizes the entire dinner. 
So that's uh-huh. what makes families this, wonderful. <laughs> we 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 know that sometimes what can't be said in a family, like a missing daddy, that is very important. There has to be the freedom in these narratives to be able to say. I'm missing daddy and someone else saying, well, I made daddy stuffing, so I feel good. There has to be that perspective that comes from different points of view and even different age levels. I totally agree. And family secrets, of course, are stories untold or stories not allowed to be told. And that's not a good thing. So certainly... Uh, we would encourage families not to do that and to allow the stories to come out. Uh, Usually it's the healthiest person in the family who will break the secret. Right. And And that's a good thing. I would support them. And you know, and people say that's what makes Thanksgiving a little little dicey, is there's no gift Uh, distraction. Every group celebrates it. And that's where the secrets come out. Very often Thanksgiving is a very heavy-duty, you know, time of speaking. Let me me Uh ask you this. Um, In your writing, you talk about three important assumptions for ambiguous loss intervention. The first one you talk about is the psychological family. And the mm-hmm. sec- second one, we mentioned it when we were speaking before, is a little bit about being able to handle dialectical thinking. Maybe you can talk a little bit about that. Yes, and of course, as a therapist, I had to learn this myself because I come from a background uh, that values precision and um, uh, answers to questions. And of course, in graduate school, we were trained to find answers to problems. So, so this was new for me. And the only way to <clears throat> to live with ambiguous loss, the only way to live with a loss that will never have resolution, <clears throat> is to keep two opposing ideas in your mind at the same time. We aren't trained for this. We're trained for precise answers. Two plus two equals four. So I want to say that in most of life, I would want that, a precise answer, a solution to a problem. But when you have losses like divorce, like dementia, like disappearance, like adoption, like uh, breaking up, kids breaking up with their first love, um, like alienation in families where they say somebody's like, like dead to me, when you have those kinds of situations, then you have to keep two opposing ideas in your mind at the same time instead of closing the door. The, the person who is the most mentally healthy will be able to hold two opposing ideas in their mind at the same time. Let me give you an example. I don't like Aunt, Aunt Margaret, but I do appreciate her coming to this holiday event. That's that's fine. I can live mm-hmm. with that. Mm-hmm. Um, or um, my loved one, my loved one is missing, can't come home. I don't know where he is, but I still love him and move forward with my life even without him. In mm-hmm. other words, you're not putting your life on hold and waiting because that will be dysfunctional. When, so, when you're waiting for a, a missing person to come home yes. or when you're waiting for a loved one who has dementia to die, 
Mm-hmm. Those are both dysfunctional. You need to do two things at once. You need to pay attention to this loss or the lost person and at the same time move forward with your life. And that can be making new friends. It can be taking over the money management when you never did it before. Um, it definitely should involve human contact, new, so, new human contacts. So sometimes it's very valuable. I'm thinking of children who are able to say, I miss mommy and daddy being together on Christmas morning when we open the gifts, but I like going with dad now on skiing after Christmas as the thing I do with him. (laughs) See, children are so good at this, and by the way, they catch on to it quicker than we adults. Yeah, but I I love the fact that you're... That you're yeah. underscoring the health of the amb- of the of the dialectical thinking, of the ability mm-hmm. to hold two different feelings side by side. Yeah, it, it's, it takes a stretch for some of us. Now there are cultures that have no stretch in this at all. They do it all the time. More Buddhist cultures, Native American cultures do it all the time. They do not have struggle with it. My background happens to be Swiss American, which is why mm-hmm. I was trained that things should be precise. There should be a precise answer, uh, and so I had to struggle a little with it. Maybe that's why I've spent 40 years studying ambiguity. Do you suppose? Well, maybe. (laughs) So now this fits a little bit in with the notion of finding meaning that you say is so important and the difference between riveting on objective truth and permitting a person's perspective on it. Ah, yes. Well, finding meaning is... (laughs) is like a cloud, isn't it? It's sort of amorphous. Um, But it is, as Viktor Frankl said so long ago, as a result of the Holocaust, if if you find meaning in your life and meaning and purpose in your life despite loss and, and suffering, you will be healthier than if you do not. People without meaning and purpose in their life die quicker. Um, mm. Victor Frankl was right about the emphasis on meaning, and he's one of the only pioneers in the loss and grief field that is still supported today by actual research. Mm. That meaning-making is, is central to being able to live with loss. And notice I said live with loss. We no longer believe in closure. We no longer no, we don't, no longer believe that you need to get over it. You do not need to get over it. Uh, you can live with loss, but you have to keep those two opposing ideas in your mind at the same time, that occasionally you're sad, and at the same time you have joyful events in your life. Now, I love that you you listed Viktor Frankl's three ways of finding meaning as performing some act, and then I'm going to let you explain, experiencing a value such as nature, art, religion, mm-hmm. and the third is a big one, and that is the attitude that suffering is not always preventable. Yes, and that's the big one for the ambiguous loss work, because... Suffering is going to continue. We see the suffering uh, from slavery still today, don't we? Mm-hmm. 
Mm-hmm. We see the suffering from the Native American uh, genocide still today. We see the suffering in the grandchildren and now great-grandchildren sometimes um, of Holocaust survivors, although I think the generation that suffered the most was probably the first generation of those who were um, who disappeared. Um, and and we've learned since then a little bit about how to intervene and make things better despite that horrible history. Uh, so yes, suffering in in Western cultures, suffering is something you're supposed to get over. In more Eastern cultures, uh, suffering is part of life. And and uh, I read somewhere, I think I've written somewhere that says someone in Tibet said that um, wanting to get rid of suffering is ego wanting its own way. (laughs) I love that. It is. We are very mastery-oriented people in Western culture. We want to straighten the rivers and put a man on the moon and so on. And so we want to get over suffering. We don't like it in our own lives. We think we failed if we suffer, and we do not like to witness it in other people. We withdraw from people who are suffering. I really do believe that the idea of having a purpose and a meaning helps people tremendously with the suffering. Yes, it does. They can endure it then. They can, Mm -hmm. in fact, live well. They can have some fun in life even if you embrace it rather than hide it. Hiding it doesn't work. We become hard and brittle if we do that. Now, in one of one of the papers that you wrote on families of the missing, you give a situation where someone says, "I can't stop hating for what they did." I think it's Kasako, um, and, and they're saying, I, "I just can't put down the hate." And they, you're yeah. invited to try to confront that, not so much confront it, but intervene with that. And I wondered if I you did. Would I remember that. That was in Kosovo in Pristina. Yeah. Um, during the time when there was conflict there and, a, and many, many family members just were disappeared uh, and ended up, I think, in mass graves that they found. Um, and when I was there, the people that I was working with, um, and these were therapists, said, didn't I know um, what the Turks did 600 years ago? And, well, I had read a bit of history, but, you know, 600 years is a long time <laughs> to hate. And, and then they said, we must teach our children not to forget that. We need to hate. I could tell when I was there, because it was so close to the rawness of rapes mm. and disappearances, that mm. I was not going to be able to touch that anger. It, was, it filled the room. So I decided to move to the both end model. And because um, I guess I talk with my hands sometimes, I held up one hand with a fist and I said, you hold on to this anger. And then I held up my other hand and I said, but with this other hand, this is the resilience for you to move forward in a new way and teach your children some other things beside hate and try to make the resilience hand go higher than the hate hand over time. 
Wow. Now, we're going to have interesting... to take a break, but we, I want you to come right back. Okay. It's just beautiful what you said. Um, you've been listening to Psych Up Live. We're right in the middle of speaking with Dr. Pauline Boss. She's a psychologist who penned the term ambiguous loss. Her latest book is Loving Someone Who Has Dementia, How to Find Hope While Coping with Stress and Grief. And she's working on a book, The Myth of Closure. We're coming right back to, to finish talking about resilience and hate. Stay with us. Think you've seen everything there is to see in online television? Let us surprise you. Visit voiceamerica.tv today for sports, health, business, and more on demand 24-7. A brave heart is anyone with the courage to be of service to others. If you have that courage, then Bravehearts Radio with Brian Reinbold is for you. Even if you aren't yet, you'll want to still tune in to get inspired, create your own story to share, and change your life for the better. Listen to the stories of service and courage shared by amazing guests and your input, too. Listen for Brave Hearts Radio, Mondays at 4 p.m. Eastern Time and 1 p.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Remember, doing good anywhere does good everywhere. Tune in to The Patricia Raskin Show on VoiceAmerica.com every Monday at 2 p.m. Eastern Time and 11 a.m. Pacific Time. This is the program that helps you turn obstacles into opportunities, challenges into solutions, and find answers to tough questions with the award-winning powerhouse voice of radio, Patricia Raskin. So tune in and call in to The Patricia Raskin Show, Mondays at 2 p.m. Eastern Time and 11 a.m. Pacific Time, right here on the Voice America Variety Channel. Have you ever experienced the joy of living? Not just aspects of your life, but the true joy of life itself. Barry Shore has. You could call him an ambassador of joy. From a successful entrepreneur to becoming a quadriplegic due to a rare disease to his ongoing recovery through swimming and physical rehabilitation. Barry now presents his gifts to others as host of The Joy of Living. All you need to do is tune in. Listen live every Tuesday at 10 a.m. Pacific Time and 1 p.m. Eastern on the Voice America Variety Channel. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com. You are listening to Psych Up Live. Join in our conversation today by calling Dr. Suzanne Phillips or her guest at 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. You may also send an email to radiohostphillips at gmail.com. Now, back to Psych Up Live. Welcome back to Psych Up Live. We're speaking with Dr. Pauline Boss, and she was just relating how she somehow tried to convey, uh, maybe Dr. Boss explained it, the relationship of how you can't ask people to stop hating, but you were trying to get them to not sort of let it swallow them up. Well, and also to have another goal uh, at the same time. I I knew I couldn't. Uh, as a one-day workshop 
outsider coming into this culture, I knew I couldn't uh, dissuade them from hating this old hate they had. But instead, I tried to introduce the other second idea in their mind, and that was of resilience, uh, teaching them to be strong in new ways. That is, perhaps talk to somebody in the village that they hadn't talked to before or teach their children a new idea that isn't centered on hate. And so I used my hands to demonstrate that, um, the, the fist first for the hate, and then the other hand uh, higher, uh, indicating resilience. What was important to me, and by the way, language was a major problem. This was all uh, dependent on translators. When I left for the airport, there was a group of people who had been at my workshop that lined up to say goodbye to me, <laughs> and they were all holding up their hands, and the one oh, hand was higher than the other. It oh, brought tears great. in my eyes. Oh, mm-hmm. that's precious. Well, now, one of the things that you list, and maybe we can talk about this in terms of immigration. Dr. Boss and I were talking at the break about the ambiguous loss that seems to be really something that explains what immigrants suffer when they migrate because of violence, because of um, fear. Not only is their trip and riddled with hardship, but it's riddled with loss that often goes unnoticed and is never mentioned. So how do, I mean, on your list, maybe we can match it, you talk about adjusting mastery up and down, reconstructing identity, normalizing mixed feelings, revising attachment. Maybe we can talk about some of those in terms of immigrants. Yes. Or anyone dealing yes, with them. Okay. Uh, well, the meaning, of course, we start there. Um, the, the immigrant comes in, and I think this also might touch identity. The immigrant comes in, let's say um, they're a trained doctor in an old country, and they have to flee, and they come to this country. Um, they've totally lost status and identity when they get here, and they may have to go to medical school again, or they end up being a cab driver. That's, we hear these stories a lot. And uh, so they may come in um, as one thing, and when they get here, their status and identity is lost. Um, the other thing that's, of course, lost that has great meaning to all of us, and that is language. Uh, so they come in, um, having been able to express themselves in a language that was their mother tongue, and they come here and they can't understand people, and people can't understand them or may even be angry at them for speaking a foreign language. Yes. And then as time goes on, their children learn it in school and the parents don't, and so you have a, uh upside-down power power arrangement in the family where the kids now know more about the paperwork that's coming in than the parents do. And the kids become the conduit to the outside world. Certainly there's... uh, My my own grandmother would not learn English. Uh, She said she had lost her mother who was still living in a foreign country and of course World War II would not allow any contact. Uh, She said, I lost my mother and I lost the mountains. Uh, I'm not going to lose my language. Mm -hmm. So she refused. And I hear that story over and over today. Mm -hmm. Yes, 
I've heard it too. Yes. Yeah. And, and so I have great compassion, especially for elderly grandmothers who are here because they may not go out into the community as much as the elderly men do, and so they don't learn the language. Um, their kids will. That's how I look at it. Um, and let's see, what else is there? Well, sometimes what's said, I don't know if this is true with your mom, that their children know the language, so they still have that wonderful connection, even though they're speaking, whether it's Swedish or Mm -hmm. Italian or whatever, but sometimes the Mm -hmm. grandchildren don't know it, and that's a sad gap in terms of... The original language, yeah, I I believe in biculturalism, that is, we, we certainly are patriotic to the country in which we live. But we still keep our customs. I mean, the Irish mm-hmm. still have their celebrations, Chinese the, from, from the migrations of the 1900s, and so we should allow that for the migrations now. It's not unusual to have the parades in New York City mm-hmm. for every nationality. I think it's lovely. We are, we are a country of people from someplace else except for the Native Americans. Mm. And we, need, we have always celebrated that, and we need to. But we need to rec- recognize that people who are uprooted for one reason or another, whether it was their choice or not their choice, that they have some kind of loss, ambiguous loss, when they settle in our country. And we need to have some compassion for that. Um, it, we would have the same if we were relocated to a foreign Absolutely. country. Absolutely. Now, Absolutely. could you explain the term adjusting mastery up and down? Mm-hmm. Yes. When I first wrote that, I, I and I was thinking of 9-11 in New York City, I had called it tempering mastery. That is that, you know, people in New York City have a lot of mastery. You can't live in New York City and thrive without being smart and capable and competent. So in New York City, people would say, why aren't these families recognizing that their loved ones are dead? They wanted it over with. Highly mastery-oriented societies. So I, I thought that we have to tamp down our need for control and mastery and a mm. precise answer. Well, the, some people, the International Committee of the Red Cross, some people who worked with them tested my theory in Eastern cultures, uh, and they found that in patriarchal villages where the um, men are in charge, that when the men are kidnapped, when a husband is kidnapped, his wife becomes neither a wife nor widow. And since she is living with his family, she is now ostracized Mm. and becomes a kind of Cinderella-like figure, uh, disrespected in the family, even abused. Mm. And in those situations, um, they found that mastery needed to be increased, not decreased, that these women need to be empowered. And they empowered them by having them come together, all these women with missing husbands come together in a community group so that they were now empowered. And if their families abused them, um, the group knew it. And so the secret was out. And that prevented, uh, that allowed them to be treated better. So... 
since since that research came in, that's the one correction of the theory, that it is not tempering mastery, it is adjusting it up or down depending on what kind of people, what kind of culture you're working with. Hmm. But after 9-11, I worked with many firemen, and they didn't want to come off the pile, and in terms of their edict, is you, you don't leave without every man. And it yeah. was not until they were in groups where we were inviting them to take that mastery and use it as buddy care for each other, that yeah. we could get some momentum and even some interest in being in groups. Um, because groups are they're powerful. Yeah, mm-hmm. you know, their mastery is, they're the savers, they're the doers, they're not the patients, and they're not... Su- yes, they're like soldiers. Uh-huh. Yes. yes. So when you invite uh-huh. them to do the buddy care and we invited them to be trained rather than to be treated, the response right. was very, very different. Yes, absolutely. That was very good. We cannot pathologize people who um, experience ambiguous loss. The pathology lies in the, the type of loss. The pathology lies in the ambiguity. Uh, when you don't know what's going on, you we all go a bit crazy. Uh, right. You go it's to a doctor to, yeah. to find out what's wrong with you, and if they tell you uh, you have a disease but we can't tell you what it is, that would be very disconcerting to even the strongest person. Mm-hmm. And so ambiguity is not something most of us like. It is very stressful. Now, one of the things, and I think it will apply to all of our listeners, that you say is a very important piece in dealing with ambiguous loss is discovering new hope through survival yes. missions. Um, maybe we can speak yes. a little bit about that. Yes, and there's one more um, uh, clarification there. I told you about the mastery correction. The clarification is I put in the adjective new because some people misconstrued that, thinking that what I meant was you should continue hoping for the missing person to come home or you should continue hoping for the person with dementia to get back to normal. I did not mean that. Uh, What you should hope for is something new. It has to be something new because the situation you have is pretty much hopeless. Mm -hmm. So it has to be something you talk about with other people you come up with. If you can't leave the house, you can uh, explore on the computer. You have to imagine yourself in a new way without the lost person. Mm-hmm. And that that is better done talking with somebody else. It's not impossible to do alone, but either online or in person, talk with other people and figure out what you can do to move on after you're divorced, uh, after you've broken up with somebody, after your spouse uh, has died of dementia, after your child has left home. That's a very mm-hmm. common one, by the way, and a troubling one. One that we saw with the 9-11 groups, and I'm literally going to meet with one of those groups this week, is the children's mission, in a number of cases, was to follow in the father's footsteps. So some ended up pulling in the financial district, literally, 
in very similar mm-hmm. types of jobs with the same view out of their window that their dad had, which is very big to them. I saw it that. It was too. emotional, but it was very big to them. And we had both men and women children go into the police and fire department. So yes. that was a, yes. that was a kind of new way of hoping, just to, as you're saying, to uh, their dads were not coming back, but they took yes. that. that kind was of a healthy reaction, wasn't yeah. it? It was a very, I, I worked with family, union families who served in the windows of the world restaurant. And in that, and I, one family whose the husband was missing, he was a butcher in the restaurant there. The son then eventually went to school to learn how to, to play that role. Oh, yes. Okay, very, very yeah. similar, yes. Same, now, I, similar as, as we're ending now, I want to ask... What would you give as a take-home message to our listeners with respect to what do you want them to take from your important term, ambiguous loss? I think what I'd like them to know is that there is such a thing. There is such a phenomenon out there and that we all have experienced it but probably didn't have a name for it. And naming it allows us to cope with it. If you don't have a name for the problem, you can't cope, you can't grieve, you're stuck, it's frozen. Uh, so for yourselves and perhaps for your friends and, and um, neighbors, uh, this is a name that you can share with them, that, oh, you have an ambiguous loss. Uh, it is very stressful. It is one of the hardest losses to bear because there often is no resolution. That's as much as you tell them. One more thing, though. It is not your fault. You must tell them that the pathology lies in the ambiguity, not in them. Even though they have symptoms, the symptoms are caused by their context of ambiguous loss, most likely not because they are deficient in their own mental health or physical health. So it's very important to depathologize. Yes, yes. And it's very common. I mean, I mentioned the first three when I opened the show and think of how common it is. Now, Dr. Boss, how could our listeners find you and any of your writings and your books? Where can they go to do that to get the books to read more about you and your work? Uh, my website is um, now the university's website, but, but it's www.ambiguousloss.com. And the University of Minnesota has offered a course on ambiguous loss there for continuing education credits or just for a certificate. Um, and also all of my writings are listed there and, and so on. You can reach me through that website, www.ambiguousloss.com. And all of my books are available at your favorite bookstore or on Amazon.com. Okay, and we'll be looking for your new books soon, The Myth of Closure. Um, I want to thank you, Dr. Boss, for coming on Psych Up Live, as well as your work, your tireless work over all these years. You coined the term in the 70s, and you just keep adding to the writing and scholarship. You've touched so many people, and you've touched all our listeners today. Thank you so much for coming on Psych Up Live. It was my pleasure. Thank you. Thanks. I want to thank my listeners. And remember, you can hear this in any prior show as a podcast 
by this evening on my host site, my website, and many podcast apps. The one on your iPhone, on iTunes, on Stitcher, Apple Podcasts, TuneIn, Google Play, Spotify, Google Home, Amazon Alexa, just about everywhere. This is going to be a wonderful podcast that you could hear at any time. Remember to drop me a comment or a question at radiohostphillips at gmail.com. Mostly until next week, please take care, thanks, and be listening. Thank you for tuning in to Psych Up Live. Please join Dr. Suzanne Phillips for another edition of our programming next Thursday at 11 a.m. Pacific Time, 2 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Until then, be well and be listening.